This hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. I'm very excited about today's guest. It's comedian and writer Kelly Bachman. She is great. She's produced some popular shows. and She talks with me about those shows and her work. We also have a great and really interesting chat about being the subject of a big story in the media. And some of you may know about Kelly through the headline-grabbing story, Stand Up Calls Out Harvey Weinstein to His Face at a Show. It made the rounds. Uh, She was interviewed by CNN and a bunch of outlets about it. That's not why I had her on. I had actually sort of forgotten about that story and I had her on because she's done good work and she has an interesting comedic voice. But we do talk about that incident specifically in regards to what it's like to be in the spotlight with everyone else using you and your experience as part of a narrative they want to tell even when their narrative doesn't fit your experience. A very interesting perspective to hear, especially after that Megan Oprah interview, It's kind of like how in high school, everyone knew someone for one incident and that incident defined them, even though it wasn't fair or right to reduce them to that one incident or narrative. It may have happened to you in high school. It happened to Megan. It happened to Kelly. It happens on Twitter to tons of people, famous or not, all the time. Having words put in your mouth and thoughts put in your head and having that define you sounds really daunting given Kelly's insight to that experience and just what we're hearing these days. But that's not the majority of what she and I talk about. But that part was very interesting. And then she and I had a really great talk about her work. So here it is, my chat with Kelly Bachman. You are from Greensboro, North Carolina. I am, yes. I lived in Raleigh until I was 11 and I still have uh, an aunt and uncle and cousins in Greensboro. Oh, uh, nice! And, uh, very cool. Yeah, and I, I lived. In I went South to Carolina, NC State, but, so I, yes. I lived in Raleigh for for a few years myself. That's right. I when I was little, when I was like five or six, I I really liked uh, NC State um, mostly because my favorite color was red at the time, and Same. I thought, yeah, and I thought um, wolves were cool. <laughs> Yeah, I I actually was very afraid of wolves. I used to have nightmares about wolves, so I guess I was like doing like a Batman type thing, like becoming (laughs) my worst fear. (laughs) Um, Well, that's uh, that's awesome. Um, Of course, now I'm a Duke Blue Devils fan, but we don't have to get into that. No, we don't. You know, I never was really. I never really got into the. like rivalry thing except just like hating Carolina. Yeah, <laughs> which I of, can agree. Which with. I only did. I only hated and I hate is a strong word that I don't use often. Correct. But I hated so much the attitude that 
the students had about the rivalries. Like, they really seemed, there was, like, really this energy of, like, superiority. Oh, yeah. That really rubbed me such a way that mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? I am involved. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't really care about this, but I care about you being hap- unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my brother went to Duke, and so, um, and our love for Duke started around when I was 10. Uh, but uh, I still have a lot of respect for NC State because Jimmy V was there when I was a yeah, little kid. Yeah, of course. So, like, of course. You know. Well, Duke Duke never bothered me because they were never mean. They seemed like secure in themselves. They seemed like maybe I'm just thinking of like literally individuals. <laughs> yeah, because they were they never broke up with me uh, after we went to college. Like they were always like really uh, supportive of me. Uh, no, I I I never really I never went to um, basketball games really and and. Uh, college was kind of like high school part two for me. I was just uh, ready to, was ready to get to New York and start my real life. Was always kind of my like mentality. Mm. Well, that's how I felt in high school. Like, let me just get out of here. Um, yeah. So you experiencing that in college, and then did right after graduating, did you move to? New yeah, York? like the day after, pretty much. I moved wow. uh, immediately. It was always my plan. I I wasn't, uh, I'm from a pretty big family, and there was sort of a rule that we weren't allowed to go to an out-of-state college. We wanted to go to a private college. Um, so I just sort of uh, picked somewhere in the state, and uh, it for me, it was just like, let's get this piece of paper and go. Like, I want to go do things. And I didn't really know what that was going to be exactly, but um, I think by the time I graduated, I really accepted that I wanted to work uh, in film and TV and like be a TV writer or something in that world, uh, which I I had not really thought was an option up until like literally my last semester of senior year. I think I read like Tina Fey's book and I read Mindy Kaling's book. And they just seemed, like, so, like, me. Like, mm. I don't know how to describe it, but they were describing their childhoods and describing their personalities. And I was like, oh, this is, like, this is attainable. I could be like this. And before that, I thought of writing and comedy as this thing that I liked to do for fun when I was a kid. Like, when I was a kid, I wrote sketches, and I loved SNL, and I loved Monty Python, and I, like, really just, like, uh, was this little writer... And, like, as I um, got older, it felt like such a pipe dream type thing, Mm -hmm. and I didn't really have creative outlets uh, at my school. And I just thought of it as this thing that I see, the secret talent I had that I I could, like, write short stories as a hobby or something. And then, I don't know, reading those books really, like, made me see that people who do that career are, like, normal like i don't know like they're like regular they're like me like they're Mm -hmm. they're the jokes they have with their friends and the way they grew up and i don't know that kind of clicked something for me and i was like okay i'm gonna go to new york and like take classes at ucb and be an nbc page and like Except that's not how it happened either. Because, <laughs> you didn't like, become a you, 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 being an NBC like, page. That's such a rare job. To get, that's so hard to get that job. That's like getting into Harvard. <laughs> and also, like, 
I could not afford UCB classes at all. And I realized I actually just needed to like focus on surviving in New York. So I think my first uh, couple of years, I was mainly just trying to stay afloat doing like six internships mm. and working in a restaurant. And, and I, I got into like the indie film world because it was easier to break into that than uh, corporate right tv unshockingly yeah exactly is that some, the pitter patter of a pet that i'm hearing oh yeah that's my dog uh oh, she's... I love it. grace come here <laughs> come on okay oh this, this is my dog she's a, a long-haired wiener dog i love seeing dogs <laughs> i'm a big dog fan and my girlfriend is as well her whole family they're like huge dog lovers oh, dogs are awesome they are. Oh my gosh, what a sweet face. Well, hello, dog. I'll have some questions for you later. Yeah, Gracie's uh, has a much less of a tendency to ramble than I do because <laughs> she's much more used to being uh, pent up inside. Whereas I, this is like my first conversation with a human today, so I'm like, la, 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 la. <laughs> I'll <He's> listen. Like... <laughs> I have been there. <laughs> I've been there so often where. I'm talking to somebody on the phone, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot kind of how to do this. Um, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned that you did, like, six internships upon getting here, but they they not NBC Page. But which ones did you get? I was working as basically, like, unpaid assistant to a lot of um, indie filmmakers, like mm. directors, Um and one of those jobs did turn into an actual assistant job, and I worked as uh, a producer's assistant for a few years, and and that kind of turned into uh, a sort of that led to other jobs like being like an associate producer on a documentary, or working at a documentary company for a few years. I worked at a commercial production studio for a little while always kind of in administrative roles but usually they would see that I wanted to do creative things and they would like let me <laughs> edit videos or like let me do these creative things that were like were not really my job description and then I realized that was really benefiting them because I was doing this like um higher paid job for free but uh it was sort of uh how I learned how to edit and learned how to make films, and then I made, um, I wanted to make my own short film to kind of, as like a calling card for like, I could make a feature film, I have a feature script, mm -hmm. and I started a film collective um, with like my neighbors and literally like any like barista who seemed like an artist that I could find, like I didn't know anyone in New York, so I was kind of just like, do you want to join my club? Like to all these people. I literally made a flyer and put it on my apartment door, like asking people to come over to my house for like for sangria. So I was pretty desperate, but I started this collective and like 50 people joined. It was pretty amazing how much it worked. Like we made my short film, we made a lot of sketch videos and shorts mm -hmm. and, um, I, I, that's how I met, um, I had a comedy partner via these sketches and he and I would make all these com he was a stand up mm -hmm. and he and I would make videos that he would be like the star of together. Was that Dylan Adler or? That was, uh, Randall Otis. Okay. Uh, and 
and he was he had never made a comedy video before and so i knew how to do that and uh i helped him and we would write them together and and he was the face of it like he was the comic i kind of was always like i'm not a comic so like i i don't need like to be a part of it and then it wasn't until he got a job at the daily show i kind of had a wake-up call i was like oh if i want to get these dream jobs like uh i need to be like the face of some stuff like i need to be a comic i need to put myself out there and uh, not just like hide behind the scenes here mm -hmm. so my goal was always the same to get into this world but my my tactic changed where i was like okay i'll like start doing stand-up or i'll get more involved with comedy and i think my final straw in like accepting that i wanted to be a comic <laughs> was i was making a documentary short which i never released about uh women comics who are also rape survivors i was right. making this in like 2018 or uh, 2017 maybe i don't really remember actually anymore but i wanted to like film these women comics that i really admired telling their jokes their experiences and uh i didn't know where to film them so i decided to produce a show at caveat and it was the first place. comedy show I had ever produced, and mm -hmm. it was like sold out, and it was written up in all these publications, and right. these women like killed, and it was this awesome thing, and I was like, "Dang, that's this is awesome," but then I realized like I want to be a part of like, right, <laughs> like right. I want to I want to be a comic, and so that was when I finally accepted like I'll stop dancing around being around comedians and working with them all the time, mm -hmm. but then I started doing stand up, and it's sort of like. I think I had been involved with comedy for so long and already knew so many comedians that it sort of clicked right away for me. And right. And that yeah. show that you referenced, Rape Jokes by Survivors, is that what that that show was that you were just referring to, having started? or So that show, the first time I did it was like when the Me Too movement sort of had its rebirth mm -hmm. in twenty. 17 2016 and it was like april 2017 i think that i was doing that show or it might have been 2018 i guess 2017 is when the me too me movement Too's, like i think rebooted right and then 2018 i was like i made the show sort of as a response to like all of the sort of nasty rape jokes i was hearing by mm -hmm. uh mostly um men yeah, and I was were there like, even I women doing? I I, I, well, I only there, heard guys do the bad kind. I mean, I've definitely heard women do some bad kind, but mm -hmm. uh, sexually, I've actually I've heard some really, I've heard some really like hurtful jokes from women doing the bad kind. But they're usually like it's that internalized misogyny that's so right. like self-deprecating, where like they're right. being raped in the joke, and I'm like, oh no. Right. I don't know. It's really hard. I hate seeing those kind of jokes, but because uh, right. I just like, feel kind of sad for the person telling them because they're sort of putting themselves down in order to like be cool and, and get the laughs of men. I don't know. I But there is a lot of that. But I was kind of... Um, I wanted to showcase all of the like cool, awesome like survivor comics that mm -hmm. I knew were telling jokes too. So I just made it my search to find these women. And, and that was a really weird search at the time because it wasn't really like something people were publicly that wasn't really a thing. Like Nanette was not out yet. Like this wasn't like right, right. something people were discussing. So I mm -hmm. was 
messaging people as like a random lady like who wasn't a comedian yet being like hey um i noticed you tweeted this once um do you have a joke like that like do you want to tell it on stage and right. i would meet up with these comics and like talk to them about you know why i'm doing the show so i didn't you know to show that like i'm not like bad intentions over here right, exactly, not trying to exploit yeah. anyone not and then to, exactly yeah. i ended up doing my first one of my first open mics that way because I, I had a lot of the women meet me at an open mic to uh, to run their material together where they'd have each other as support and it wouldn't be like bombing at an open mic with these very specific jokes. Right. Very be tough to, vulnerable jokes. Very vulnerable. Yeah. And nobody, but when we were like mad at the mic, like people weren't doing the jokes because it was scary. Like the vibe mm -hmm. of the mic was scary. Like the other people at the mic were kind of scary in a way. And that was when I I like put my name in the bucket and actually did my first uh, material like that because um, I just wanted to break the ice. I wasn't trying to be in the show. I was just like trying to show the other comics that like it's cool. <laughs> I'll do it too. So I I like did this really bad. Uh, it was like an impression of Jay Leno if he were doing like rape survivor material mm -hmm. <laughs> it was like very weird whatever i did but everyone was like okay kelly's weird like <laughs> we will do our material now um now that kelly has bombed <laughs> but then it was strange because i i were i was so passionate about that project i was pushing it i was trying to make it a documentary trying to make it a special trying to like get these women uh on stage more mm -hmm. and and it it wasn't really working uh, like people were trying, there was like where I was pitching it, people were kind of saying, we, we, we like it, but we need a celebrity attached or something. Mm. And I was like, that's the whole point. There's not celebrities like talking about this because it's really yeah. hard to talk about. Right. But, uh, is certainly not, uh, well, I don't know why they would think that the <laughs> industry was it's a place wild. where they could, yeah, yeah, how the industry doesn't actually reward this behavior. But, right, I mean, um, there, why, there is no <laughs> what? survivor. Wild. Right, right. There's no survivor <laughs> who should really have felt, especially then, like they could talk about that publicly since the industry they work in has protected the perpetrators and and yeah, uh, of like the of, agencies right. protect them <laughs> right so why yeah. would they feel like they could talk about it publicly yeah but it was interesting because like i w i was passionate about that and then i kind mm -hmm. of i kind of let it go like i i i have other things i do i was working on a sketch show I was doing my own comedy which is not was not related to uh being a rape survivor and I was really working on this stuff, and I finally got to the point um, in, like, fall 2019, I left my job as production coordinator uh, at a documentary company because they asked me to leave. But I left, but it was good timing because I was really excited. I was going to pitch my sketch show in L.A. Like, my sketch show got, like, discovered by, like, a production company, and we pitched the show, and it was very exciting, We're and... My friends and I, we all like flew out to LA to do the show, and I and I had these meetings, and we were like, "This is the most wild week of our lives! Like, this is so, this is the the biggest thing I've ever done." And the day I got back from that uh, trip is the day I performed on that show with Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, I was just about to bring that up. That because uh, so, yeah. I heard about this 
before I knew who you were and um, didn't know until I was researching you uh, that you were the comic that I saw in this story who was on stage and somebody decided after everything had come out and I think he had already been arrested by this point maybe like yeah was, he was he was waiting for trial I think right before. right so the 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 wheels were in motion to hold him accountable actually this wasn't right. like just when one or two people came forward this was well into the litigation of the allegations and someone brought him to a show yeah, well, he was invited by the producers of the show, uh, and that's who I was really calling out that night, which right. I, try to, I try to make clear, like, I didn't really feel like it was controversial to say that this man is uh, a rapist, but, right. like, it was that this room was still treating him like he was still powerful. They were still, like, you could tell they were still sucking up to him. It was, like, mm. old, old Weinstein Lower East Side is what it looked like. Because the host was sucking up to him. The host was booing me for saying anything. Mm. Like, the producers had him at a special table reserved for industry. Like, so I was really calling them out. And since then, the narrative that's always pushed is it's always like me versus Weinstein. Like, um, and I literally will get interviewed by documentaries and like press that will twist my words and have me saying, like, I'm just. I've stood up to him and lo- but I really didn't view him as powerful at that point. I viewed him as kind of this worm that was mm-hmm. despised and disgraced mm-hmm. and and this but there are people who are so protective of this culture of like rape culture and the power dynamics that you know he represents that they're like still clinging on to him even when he's on trial. Like, it was really, that was what was disturbing to me, but it it was kind of, uh, it was interesting, though, because it it allowed me to kind of get back into the work that had pushed me into comedy stand-up in the first place, which Mm. is, like, I had this show, Rape Jokes by Survivors, um, already in my back pocket, like, I had already produced, and the following week, New York Comedy Festival asked if I wanted to do something there and i was like oh yeah there's something i've always wanted to do here <laughs> Just, okay. oh, so, so i was able to get back to okay. the kind of work you know i was wondering that, when the new york comedy festival uh performance fell in the timeline so it, that was after the incident at the at the show yeah i was that was kind of the most that seemed like the easiest thing to do next was to mm-hmm. do that show again and and include all these uh include the people who had inspired me, um, who gave, you know, the people who gave me the strength really to even be able to talk like that on stage. So, um, that was really special to get to do that again. And, and then from that, I, because on the second show, the second Rainbow Space Survivors, I booked Bill Adler on the show and he has such a, um, a similar energy to me in terms of just like, he brings a lot of light and like joy to talking about this really intense stuff. Mm. And it made me just want to like do more with him. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I'm a musical person as well. And so from that came, uh, rape victims are horny too, which is like our hour, uh, Mm. which of musical parody about our experiences. And it's sort of like cabaret, like vaudeville act of two people, like being very silly, but it's, all about uh, 
great trauma. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's a specific show. You have to really want that, all of that. <laughs> but it is, but we, we, we had a lot of fun doing that, though. I, I'm curious about something with that, uh, not to go back too much to uh, something I'm sure you've talked about a million times. But uh, that that situation, um, the way it played out online, the, the Harvey Weinstein story, you mentioned that the media was sort of making it just all about the narrative of women standing up to Harvey Weinstein. This woman called out Harvey Weinstein when you were actually talking about something else. And another way that I've seen that twisted online, because I saw it on Twitter when it trended. Right. But the other way it t- was twisted was... The trolls, the, and I don't mean troll in that, like, they're just seeking out calling, you know, creating controversy on Twitter. I mean, like, they're troll people. They're bad people who are just, like, living under a rock. Right. Um, they, on the Internet, were playing into the booing or whatever that was happening, the, the sort of right. unrest that people had about you calling them out, like you were somehow in the wrong. And yeah. They played into that. And I was wondering, because I feel like that sort of dynamic happens a lot on the Internet with any sort of conversation. And being someone who was in the midst of that and the subject of of the topic, how did you from within see how false the narratives were getting played out by people for or against it? Yeah, it was interesting because when you're in that experience, it's actually so overwhelming that you don't see a lot of what people are saying about you because your phone is blowing up like the press outlets get your phone number and they're calling you like you can't look at your phone without it ringing or like accidentally answering your phone Mm -hmm. and your your Twitter is just like you're you're seeing all the love bombing and you're also seeing like little just like bleeps of like she's a bitch or something or like okay yeah. I don't know. and and that you miss actually a lot of the uh the criticism mm-hmm. but um i was so confused because it would usually come up when i would go on a podcast or something i would assume i was just going on the podcast in a kind of general way mm-hmm. and then i would realize that i was going on the podcast to like say my side of the story oh, as if yeah. like they okay. weren't on my side already and i would get really confused because they would kind of assume i had already listened to whatever like they had been saying about me and i <laughs> really hadn't like i had no idea like yeah. and they're like well you know we've been hearing that you know it was actually an open mic and that he was just trying to enjoy dinner in the back and you and you like bothered him at his table and then like he wasn't actually invited to the they would say all these kind of lies about what happened and they'd be like is that true and i was just like no i don't like wait why am i here saying this like i i didn't realize that's what this was like i'm i came to this show to like set the record straight i thought like the news did that but uh there was some of that and then a lot of I would always see it through comedy like I wasn't really seeing it online like I would go to uh, comedy venues for the first time that I've never been to like I'm pretty new I'm new to stand up mm-hmm. so I was meeting people for the first time and people some people were really mean like mm-hmm. uh, sometimes I, I would I was working on material for the Rape Jokes by Survivor show and so I was having to do it at shows because I didn't have a lot of time to prepare mm-hmm. and uh 
it would not do well sometimes, obviously. <laughs> like, that's pretty rough. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. to do that kind of material at, like, a show, especially in a club or something. And uh, people would get up after me and make, like, mean rape jokes. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, someone would, I'm like, and that's when I would see, like, women doing their renditions of mean rape jokes, by mm -hmm. the way. And, and then come up to me and say something like, why are you crying? Like... Because I would cry, <laughs> I would yeah. cry like when they were mean, because I'm a human being. Right. But um, I really didn't feel welcome, and I wasn't getting booked more like you would expect. You know, you go viral, you're like your bookings go up or something. It was like I felt this resentment from a lot of comedians, and I was just confused because I felt like I was backed into a corner. Like I didn't ask for this, and people that I thought were my friends were saying like why are you talking about this on stage? Like kind of like accusing me of like being an opportunist yeah. or like, I just, and it made me truly avoid comedy spaces altogether, except unless I was with Dylan. And that's why he was like my, my rock. <laughs> like if you're listening, Dylan, you're my rock. But like Dylan and, and I would perform together and I would feel safe with him. So I, I was truly like isolating myself except for preparing for this show. Mm -hmm. And what a great time to isolate yourself. Uh, the months of October 2019 to March 2020. Yeah, like, what a perfect time to get that isolation in <laughs> and to spend up your savings and just chill out at home. Uh, but now I'm, I'm ready to get back out there. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but Dylan and I did our show one time, and it was really fun, and we were so excited about it. And we actually, we got to go to LA on like March 11th and do our show with, on this fundraiser show with Chelsea Handler. And I remember we were like, oh my God, we're going to get to do this show all the time now. It's going to be awesome. And it was not awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing was awesome ever again. Mm. But, uh, but that's kind of, yeah, it was a weird, it was a very weird time. And people still like, I'm literally coming out. I don't want to say too much, but I'm like coming there are still like projects that i'm going to be appearing in from interviews from that happened during that time mm. and i'm still seeing the way it's like people push their own narrative onto you like like if i would write something i wouldn't even say oh, harvey weinstein's name in it and then the editors like they want it to be about that of course because like clicks and He's the person who's famous, like, right. obviously. But, like, it was about so much more than that to me. And it, and I really wanted to call attention to that, the, the fact that the praise that was happening for me was so relative to the fact that he was already a pariah, already disgraced, right. already his career is done. Right. So, if, so it's so easy to say, wow, Kelly stood up to power. Let's put those words in her mouth. But, like, if I had called out someone who is still powerful or still popular, like I could be like destroyed for that. Right. And, and even calling out this like literal, like pile of garbage, man, like even calling him out there, there's still this split. Like maybe she's just doing it for attention. Ugh. Maybe she just like, you know, maybe she planned this all, like, and that just goes to show how far, you know, we have to go, to right. go. Also, if 
you were a guy making fun of Harvey Weinstein and, and the show for bringing him there, they probably wouldn't have put you in that narrative. You know, you know, like yeah. that's another thing that's like, hey, we still have a long way to go. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking about this through the lens of having seen Framing Britney Spears. And so like everything since I've seen that has gone through the lens of, well, this is how people use things online. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they'll twist things so they can get attention. And it's not even just like people will say like, oh, CNN and HuffPost, but also average people on right. Twitter who are just trying to get likes and retweets and build up yeah. their own base and get to having a check mark or people who have a check mark. I saw someone the other day after Janet Jackson posted a video, she was like, she responds after Justin Timberlake apologizes. She didn't mention anything about any of that. Right. And they just attach these two things. Like you were talking about, like you writing a material that has nothing to do with Harvey Weinstein. And then they suddenly attach that that yeah. night to it it's it's yeah it's bizarre it's hard it's hard especially like i didn't i didn't have representation i didn't have anyone to right. filter my emails or and right. i was so overwhelmed that someone would kind of say like uh can you come to you know do an interview right now and i'd be like no I, i'm still in my pajamas in my apartment and then they'd be like we'll come to you don't worry and then they right. like show up on your door and i'm like hello i'm just like and they and I, I'm sitting there saying, like, I'm crying. Can you not, like, uh, film me right now? And they're like, mm-hmm. sure. Like, just go in for the close-up while she's looking out the window. Exactly. <laughs> like, I just, yeah. And they, like, get these bites they need. They'll turn literally me saying something sarcastic into, like, this sincere thing that they put over B-roll of me crying and looking out the window. And it, it paints a whole different picture of it, what you it are experiencing. Does. And it's just, it's like not who I am. And mm-hmm. and even if it's, sometimes it'll even be something that I do believe, but it's like something I would, still there's something I would never say. Like, right, right. like I'm just like, oh, I guess I believe that, but like, I don't talk like that. Mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. or someone, I would write a piece and then, you know, these editors would email me back, like, could you put something in about like Weinstein, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no. sure. Cause I didn't have like, cause I didn't have representation. And I was so overwhelmed. Write. I would be like, here's the sentence you told me to write. And, and then it would get published and I'd read it and I'd be like, wait, that's not me. Like I didn't write. And it was, it was sort of, it literally all happened so fast that now sometimes I get a little nervous just thinking about what's out there from that time. It's just, it doesn't really feel. I mean, I know I'm going to have more chances to speak for myself as my hopefully long career goes on as the different mm-hmm. things I do with my life. But like that time, it was just so like I felt so like uh, squeezed up. Like right. it was just sort of like get every last tear out of her before mm-hmm. this isn't relevant anymore. And and I know a lot of people who go through that, but mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of people there's this misconception. That when you get put up on a pedestal, uh, that it comes with all these like Perks. prizes, right. <laughs> like like or that it comes with like a lot of like jobs and like all these and because people when people are like shit talking people like that they're always kind of acting like they get like representation right mm-hmm. like from this then now she's got an agent now she's got a good job now she's got all this money and like none of that really changed for me from that like it was. Uh, I actually, I kind of had more going for me, like, in that sense, like, the day before <laughs> that all happened when I was, like, having these mm-hmm. cool meetings, and, 
and from that mainly it was like it felt it felt at the time mainly like exploitation was coming out of it and mm-hmm. not really anything that was beneficial to me of course mm-hmm. in the long term i realized name recognition of course is like an intangible thing and like having followers may lead to like opportunities eventually like I don't know. I don't really know how that stuff works. I think it kind of builds up slowly over time. Mm-hmm. But as far as like this myth that like people who uh, are whistleblowers or people who speak out in the Me Too movement are all of a sudden just like brought to like career heaven, it it's just not true. Like I just don't see it being true for anyone. I appreciate you sharing all of that, and uh, and I didn't even. Um anticipate all of the things that that came from that when I uh, you know noticed when, when we started talking about it and it's tough to I can't imagine going through that I mean I've only gone through it in extremely minor ways um, being interviewed for a job for the local paper and sort of being misquoted and that was weird and it was remotely uncontroversial you know and it still was sort of like oh that's a weird feeling (laughs) this guy put words in my mouth that i didn't say so i can't imagine yeah yeah it makes me feel really overprotective or maybe not overprotective Mm. but like i literally it's like this is on my mind because literally right right before we got on zoom i was tagged in something that was like i won't say what it is but it was (laughs) me like it was a quote for me, like that from last November, and it was in in a montage with all this other different stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying something like I'm trying to think of a different way to phrase the quote so that it's different. Right, right. <laughs> but I'm saying something like, "I'm a hero, and that's my story." And uh, like, I might as well be saying that. And it's literally like, it's so cut up. If because I know the way I talk, I can uh-huh. tell that it's taken from like five different sentences because it's uh-huh. like I am a hero, and right, that right. is my stand-up. <laughs> like it's just <laughs> like, uh, and it's over like B-roll of me, and then it's like this sad, mm. sad, dejected, traumatized face of me from that November, and it's in this like big thing that'll like be on tv and it just makes me so nervous and i know that i can't say anything because then i'll just look like ungrateful so i just have to be like yeah right i'm excited for the exposure like yeah well that's uh, a tough spot there's something really icky about that feeling um for me just hearing about it so i can't imagine going through it and i feel like one of the big things that's going on on social media every day in so many ways is something that everyone complains about the media doing but yet here are everyday people doing it themselves and not checking themselves and it's um it's unfortunate that that goes on and uh, as was mentioned earlier there's still a long way to go with this and of course there's people who aren't intentionally doing things and they're accidentally doing it and sure. Uh, but at the same time, there is a product to uh, how people discuss these things online right. and, and not everything is our business as consumers. Yeah. And um, we don't know most of the details because if, if we weren't involved with something, 
Right. So I, I think we need to constantly be reminding ourselves of that when something like this blows up and, and there's a criticism yeah. of it. And it's like, well, do you, are you, you, yeah. do you really have the data to criticize? <laughs> well, because even every, every single thing, like I used to work for a documentary company and mm-hmm. even like the, the quote good document, like the good guys or the, the liberals or whatever you want to call it, like the people or whoever made the Britney documentary, everybody, they have their own narrative they're trying to tell. Mm-hmm. They have their own agenda, mm-hmm. no matter what the story is. And so sometimes I'll be quoted, I'll get this made up quote taken from word soup from me. And it will technically be like a positive kind of liberal sentence. Mm-hmm. It might be something like, <laughs> it would be me saying something like the future is female or something. Mm-hmm. But like, I'm like, Oh, I would never say that, but uh, <laughs> go off, I guess. And then they're, they're like, well, we know that you never said that, but we feel like you speak for all women when you said that. And that's what was mm. special about it. And I'm like, okay, well, they are your words that you put in my mouth. So I understand why you would like them. But I actually don't speak for all women. I speak for me, and I don't really want to be like pedestal girl who like is being presented as like angel who thinks she's right. Because if you're angel who thinks she's right, then when you're wrong, mm-hmm. people really punish you for being wrong. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't think I'm like this high horse angel girl. I like know that I'm wrong a lot. And so I'd rather be in normal world where I have a job (laughs) (laughs) and someone just hires me. And when I am in an interview, they're not like, well, wouldn't you rather have your own show? We know you from the Internet. And I'm like, I mean, yes, I would love my own show. I would really like a job. We would all like (laughs) success. (laughs) We would all like to be our own boss. That's understood. (laughs) You don't want to be a production coordinator anymore. We know what you really want, Kelly. We've seen you. I can't. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I don't know. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm trying to get back into my my six years of film production experience that mm-hmm. I have that I would like to uh, get a job from, but the interviews are sometimes weird when you have name recognition doesn't always doesn't always help go the way that you plan. Right. You know. Um, you know. You mentioned you're getting a role in film work, and it reminds me just again how much you've done. Uh, you've You've got the film work, the stand-up, um, and then you also mentioned that you have uh, some musical uh, uh, talent in your in your wheelhouse. Uh, yeah, it's all awesome, and using all of it, coming finding a way to use all of it. I'm sure the next job you have, regardless of what field it's in, it's going to be able to utilize all of the different things that you can do and that you've learned over time. I hope so. I do feel like it builds. It stuff builds on. In ways that you don't even expect. Like, I, I remember years ago, I made a short film that I kind of thought would be the big thing. And I was excited about it. And I was like, I wrote this feature film, and the short film's going to do well. And then people are going to be like, do you have a feature script? And I'll say, yes. Oh, my God, I do. But, like, nothing ever happened from that. But um, recently, I've been writing, uh, I've been writing a novel. 
Mm-hmm. And I actually, I just finished... Yet another thing, yeah. I finished the manuscript, like, literally hours ago. Like, it was very exciting. So that's probably why I'm so hyper today. I'm like, (laughs) I'm high off of having completed a task that I've been trying to do for a year. You're one of the few people in the last year (laughs) who has finished (laughs) the manuscript. And it was my goal, literally, to do it before March 1st. So I'm like, I fucking did it! I did it! I did it! Like, a few hours late, but I did it! That is uh, very awesome. Uh, Congratulations for doing the thing that most people said they were going to do, myself included, uh, and actually accomplishing it. I'm very excited about it. I have no idea if it's good or not, but it was like, it was a coming of age novel, and I found myself referencing this feature script I had written years ago, which I wrote, I wrote that closer to when I was actually coming of age, so I was a lot closer to the experience at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is really helpful that I have this. And sometimes I'll feel that way about other projects I've done. Like, I was, I also have a band. I, I was in a, a, like a punk band. Uh, mm-hmm. And I have all these lyrics from that punk band. And I, like, decided to make the girl in the book, like, a singer. And so her lyrics are in the book. And they're my lyrics. So it, like, these things sort of flow together. And who knows if the book will, like, sell... But maybe it will build towards something else. Like I don't know. Like I feel like these things. I'm grateful that I keep doing them. Like even though, like, technically, I haven't had monetary success mm-hmm. yet. Yeah, it, it's all right. like compounding, and I think it's sort of better to do it. You just you don't do it because you want it to equal money. You do it because. You have to do it like it's what you do. It's mm-hmm. your thing. Like mm-hmm. you have to keep making things, or else you will be sad. Right, right. Uh, that's super cool. And what is the next step with the manuscript? Do you have uh, a, a managers to? Pitch I have it? a book agent. That was actually okay. that was the thing that came out of me writing uh, all those op-eds uh, last year 2019 (laughs) whenever that was i when i wrote those articles that was the thing that happened was a book agent and i and the book agent was like do you want to write a book and i was like i don't know (laughs) that's not something i've thought about but i would like you (laughs) i don't know (laughs) i will think about it and and then i there was a book i had wanted to write when i was younger like when i was a teenager and I, I sort of just mentioned it to her, and she was like, oh, maybe go for it. Mm-hmm. So I did, and it's been fun, because it's, it's fun to write a teenage character while being like locked inside, because I feel like I'm kind of returned to my angst. <laughs> um, and I feel a lot more connected to that version of my life uh, when I have nothing else to do. <laughs> right. So yeah, there's, yeah. A, uh, there's a lot of gumption that I'm I'm picking up on. I mean, basically, the day after graduating college, you moved to New York, and then uh, you had one plan in place to you know, be at NBC Page, and 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 that doesn't quite work out. But you end up finding your way into the film world and uh, working that way. But a lot of people, I think, even myself could have gotten too discouraged to find this thing that's outside of what you were intending to do. Um, And then you're writing a manuscript when you didn't 
necessarily uh, when it was first brought up to you uh you didn't necessarily have a plan for that and now you've done it uh where does that gumption come from to uh keep going and uh or what do you pull from to get over the the humps that people face in trying to accomplish their goals hmm i don't know i guess i just i try to come back to like um I mean, I definitely wasn't always... I used to feel really blocked as an artist because I thought that I needed to, like, find a lane and stay in it. Like, okay, I'm a filmmaker now. That's what I do. I'm behind the scenes. Or, like, I do this now. And I used to always think I need to find one thing. I'm really good at it and do it and make money. And that's sort of um, what initially had me not even trying to do anything like this in college. And then... Uh, when I found film production, I thought, okay, this is like a job, like this, I can do this. But I always like wanted to do more. And I think maybe because maybe I benefited from not really having gotten to do, do all these things when I was younger, because I've kind of found like, I got this something clicked where I just like wanted to do all these things that I had, I had wanted when I was younger that I never did. Like I had never learned to play guitar when I was a kid. I had never gotten to be like, uh, in a play I wrote or like be in I had never done film camp or like all the stuff that would have been cool when I was a kid and I would just kind of make these things for myself uh, to, I was sort of trying to catch up for last lost time and um, I don't know it one thing kept leading to another but I just got latched onto this idea that I'm a storyteller and I'm going to keep finding ways to tell stories and that may change over time, but the more I share, the better. Like I got this idea of like the greater the vulnerability, the greater the reward. Like the more, I think it might've been from like, I am corny, but I read this, I read this book, The Artist, way a few years ago. Oh, my girlfriend's much, reading that now. And some it's friends kind of a cult, but I actually, <laughs> it totally, it works in a weird way. I don't know. I was literally just talking about it with, like, major name drop coming. I'm prepared. I'm prepared. Sarah Cooper. We were in the, we d- we oh, did yeah. the, uh, we were in a book club together reading The Artist Way, and I was just thinking, like, wow, she's, like, a supreme artist way success story. Mm-hmm. But the book tells you not in this. I remember something talking about with her that I think, I mean, she's like a major success story of this was to like worry about it. Uh, the, the book says like, don't worry about quality. Uh, let like you worry about quantity. Let someone else worry about the quality. Like let the universe take care of that. And just, like, don't be afraid of being bad at something. Don't be afraid of being new mm-hmm. at something. And and for Sarah, like, that was, like, I'm not saying she could tell you whether she got that from the book or not, but, like, <laughs> I saw Sarah do that with, uh, like, getting on TikTok mm-hmm. and trying something she had never done before and, like, starting to do videos when she was never, like, a writer who made a videos that before. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, for me, it was just letting go of all these things that I think I'm bad at. Like, like I think I'm bad at music. And I was just like, I don't care. <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. And, and I think in those things, 
they build into each other in a weird way. The more you're just like putting stuff out there and throwing stuff at the wall, I, I found it sort of, it inspires the other art I'm doing. Like mm -hmm. my stand-up gets more creative. The sketch show I was doing, we decided to incorporate the band and then the production company, the reason that they fell in love with the sketch show was because it had a band and they thought it was cool that like the people in the band are also in the show and like that's such <laughs> a concept. Uh, and there were like things like that that you don't even expect. Like I, I remember just being amazed like when we went we took that show out there, like I was like, people really love the band. Like they like we thought that was so extra, like that we had this band. <laughs> like this was so not the point of the show. And and people just kept saying, I gotta say, I love that band. Like <laughs> I love that you have a band. That's cool. Like I was like, of course, people like music more than comedy. This is known. <laughs> Everyone people like music. But uh, a lot of stuff, which is, or even like starting a collective, like led me to like comedian that I made sketches with, and that you know I learned how to write comedy that way. And there were a lot of things that just sort of, just the more I did, the more I would meet people and learn. And so I just started trying to lean into that of like if I have an idea that I'm excited about just doing it and it kind of just assuming it will work out even even if it doesn't because most of these ideas don't work out like mm -hmm. I mean they work out in a way then that I do them but like mm -hmm. they don't this they don't turn into like <laughs> right you know, they don't like become like a Netflix show or, or something like they. <laughs> but I, I, that, and I think that's the other thing that I think I took from that book. I don't really remember what all came from that book anymore, but um, was the idea of like not looking, not equating success to like how much praise I get or how much money I get or like not looking to fill myself up with those things from these projects or mm -hmm. from my interests. Because if I did that, yes, I would have quit five years ago when I like had ran out of money the first time mm -hmm. and like was so frustrated that none of these rich filmmakers were paying me for my internships and was so just like let down and would just get one debt thing after another. And yeah. if I had attached that to the art itself, like... I think I would have quit, but yeah. And I think the thing Elizabeth is, it's Gilbert like that's not why we that. do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think she talked about like not attaching the money side to the art, and that's a really tough thing to do, but it makes sense, right? And and you're speaking to that is it it will kill the art if you if you uh, bog it down with uh, uh, the financial side of of life. Or praise because right yeah or or critical you know mm -hmm. review because you'll never get enough like if mm -hmm. I attach mm -hmm. some like it, I see this on t people on Twitter a lot are always like chasing like the, the next follower number mm. like I need to get 10k followers I need to get 20k 30k by next <laughs> then week then they get there and 40K. it's like it doesn't really mean anything and it's like <laughs> it doesn't actually equal anything when you like it. It's good to have goals, and I don't mean not to set them, but, like, um, if I were, like, if I get $100,000, like, then I'll be happy, or, like, then I'll have made it. And when I get that, I'm going to want $500,000, and I'm going to want a million dollars. Like, it's you'll always be chasing, and the mm -hmm. same goes for praise. Like, because 
I felt that before. I remember thinking, like, I really just want to, like, make, like, a room filled with 150 people laugh. And then you do that, and then you're like, okay, that's not all I want. <laughs> like, I want a lot of things, but, like, that can't be why you're, if you're chasing that kind of validation high, uh, you'll always be chasing it. So I, I think, and some people make entire careers out of chasing it, and they are very successful but yes, are they happy? But are they happy? And then also you have people who <laughs> chase it and don't get it. And they're like, but it, I chased it. I was That means I was supposed to get it. And then they're even more unhappy. And that's uh, upsetting. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's corny to say, like, follow the joy or, like, all these, like, euphemism or whatever, at least sayings. They all feel corny, but they also they have a lot of truth to are well. true. Right, right. Like, like <laughs> I don't know, to, like... Uh, being vulnerable opens doors like mm-hmm. i just see it be true like being being prolific opens doors mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like not being afraid of being wrong like all these things that i've heard a million times uh but i think the biggest one is kind of bringing like love and joy to it like you know we can get power from hate and resentment and like you know jealousy too but it's just like it's just not as fun as uh doing things just because we enjoy them and like we want to spread joy like comedy is for spreading joy like i think people people seem to forget that sometimes Mm -hmm. Um, we're trying we're actively trying to make people laugh (laughs) <laughs> that is yeah. spreading joy and, and if you're not trying to get people to laugh then is it comedy it might be art and it's fine to put out there but if if people aren't laughing and you're not yeah. even trying to get laughs then maybe it's not comedy and that's fine if you're doing a chat talk <laughs> that's fine too that's fine. <laughs> right. and i actually encourage pursuing different arts like i think mm-hmm. that's comedians so often get boggled down they're like i'm a comedian that's my identity like purist like i'm a comic i do stand up 10 times a night that's who i am i'm like i would love if you started doing poetry i would love if you do your ted talk let's just call it what it is like exactly please let's just call it if you're a slam poet like that's awesome that's fine (laughs) no one's saying it's no one's saying it's bad because we're saying it's not comedy we're just saying it's not comedy do pottery be like seth rogan he (laughs) seems happy with the weed company he really does he seems this seems like the happiest he's ever been Well, Kelly, it's super easy to talk to you because you're dope, but I can't talk to you forever. We have a timeline, and uh, we're now at the end of the podcast, so it's time to create something together. Oh, wow. Yes. Now, what shall we create? Uh, One idea is maybe because you've nailed this thing of working on a manuscript (laughs) uh, during this time period... um, wondering what your day-to-day was uh, in order to do that. So maybe we can, uh, if you can give some tips, uh, that would be great. Or if you have another idea, we could do that. I I could give manuscript tips. I can't tell you whether my manuscript is good. (laughs) But because it is done, I can give you tips for how to get it done. Awesome. Especially if you're coming from 
if you're someone who's ever written a pilot script before, which I think a lot of writers have done, a lot of uh, screenwriters have done, and if you're trying to uh, write a book, I broke the book into like six sections of like uh, the outline was six parts that I knew had to be at least at least 30 pages each. They could be more, but like the shortest a novel can be is about 180 pages. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, I'll break this down and have, you know, these three acts and these six major points in the act and then in the book and break that all down into an outline. And then every week, uh, for six weeks, I wrote 30 pages a week. Mm-hmm. So it was like I was right. I sort of thought in my mind, like, it's like I'm writing a pilot, like I'm writing another one next week. And it, uh, and I didn't, I think it ended up taking seven weeks instead of six to get it all down after the outline. But, uh, but having that schedule really helped me and having this deadline of March 1st and really thinking about it. I think what's really helped me overall, because I've written some other things during quarantine as well, and I, I like to create this illusion that I have, uh, that I'm going to be out of time soon. Like I, I, even though I know it's not true, I will, I will literally like imagine that next month I'm going to be extremely busy and everything's going to open back up and, uh, I'm going to wish I had done more with this time. It's going to be over. And I like, don't think that's true at all, but it, it's made me be able to write like six different things because I, I have this new short period of time I give myself and I treat it almost like a fellowship. Like, like I've always wanted this time to be at home. And, and so I, I break it into a schedule because if I give myself infinite time to do something, I will take infinite time. Mm. So I, I give myself, yeah, assignments of sections, schedule, and and just kind of take it point by point, page by page, like maybe like five pages a day sometimes, maybe one page a day sometimes, mm. and uh, chip away at it. I think my, probably my other biggest like corny phrase I come back to all the time is to take baby steps every day and just do the next little thing you can do because it really does, you know, turn into the whole project eventually. That's incredible advice. I especially like just because it's resonating with me so much is the advice to uh, look at it from the perspective of if everything were to come back next week and I was upset that I didn't do these things because what I do, because I haven't accomplished much of what I wanted to accomplish. Um, And instead of thinking like, oh, well, I still have a chance, I'm thinking, well, I've already blown it. And so that gets me down, which makes it harder to create and work on stuff. But Mm. if I'm thinking the way you thought about it, then I think that'll maybe make a, a dent at least, get me on the right track at the very least. And the caveat to everything I'm saying is that if you're not getting anything done, that is literally totally fine. Like, we're in a horrible right. time. Like, exactly. This is my coping mechanism is being hyperproductive. But if, if you have other coping mechanisms, like, we're in a terrible 
plague. <laughs> like we're in the t- we are in a bad bad time and it's not like I I'm pretending it's like a fellowship whenever I need to imagine but like it's not like a fellowship. You're not afraid of of death during a fellowship. You're like at a little cabin in the woods and you're having a good time. Like this is not that. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to like lay in your bed and and just need to like light a candle and you didn't do any pages. That's happened to me many times. So uh I am sad too. Yeah. Look <laughs> I, I don't wanna have any veil over that. Right. I I love that you pointed that out because we do need to be going easier on ourselves. Right. We're in a weird time and there's no reason to think that uh, uh, we can all have the same experience yeah. with uh, the same tools uh, just because yeah. we may not be coming from the same place. And we don't need to come out of this like having written King Lear either. Like, <laughs> right. if, you, if you wrote something and it's bad, great. You still, <laughs> like, I, I'm like, I'm half convinced that the book I just wrote sucks. And that's like... You know what? I wrote it. So, like I don't know. I was just like I don't know. I have no one has read it. Literally, no one has read it. I've never read like I've never written a book before. And also, I am a bad reader. Like I haven't read that many books in my life. I feel like the chances that the books are bad are high, and that's okay. There it is. Thank you so much, Kelly, for sharing everything. And thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. She is a delight. I really dug her and think she's uh, just so fun. It was also really nice to have Gracie on. So thank you, Gracie. Very thankful for both of them sharing their time. Kelly is great, and she also has a podcast of her own coming soon, so be on the lookout for that. Follow at Belly Cockman on Twitter and at Kelly Bachman on Instagram. Those are the best places to see when her pod is coming out. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at There It Is Pod. Also, subscribe to our Comedy Lifestyle newsletter and support us if you can. We have a Patreon and a PayPal. Go to thereitispod.com for newsletter and support info. Links in bio. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. (laughs) 